Hi, you're listening to the Yale Anesthesiology Podcast. Make sure to visit our show website so that you can take advantage of the links of the papers that will be mentioned during this recording. Thank you for listening. Hi, I'm Antonio Gonzalez, and I'm thrilled to present our guest today. Dr. Anai Perlas is the Director of Research and the Director of the Anesthesia Focus Fellowship at the University of Toronto. She has done pioneer work on neuraxial and peripheral nerve sonoanatomy and has developed image-guided regional anesthesia techniques to improve the safety and the effectiveness of regional anesthesia. Besides, Dr. Perlas has developed a point-of-care ultrasound approach to assess gastric content and volume at the bedside. Dr. Perlas, thank you for being here with us today to talk about the use of ultrasound for neuraxial guidance, gastric content, and volume analysis. Thank you, Antonio. Thanks for the invitation. Uh, happy to be here with you. So let us start with the use of ultrasound for neuraxial guidance. Based on your personal experience and the results from your meta-analysis titled Lumbar Neuraxial Ultrasound for Spinal and Epidural Anesthesia, what are the benefits of using lumbar neuraxial ultrasound for spinal and epidural anesthesia, if any? Thank you. So, you know, as a society, as a specialty, we've been doing spinal and epidural anesthesia for um, over 100 years now. Uh, so for the young, healthy patient, I think we're very good at doing spinals and epidurals and complications are exceedingly rare and success rates are very high. But we all have uh, some groups of patients which are very challenging. And I think there's three main groups of patients that benefit from these. The morbidly obese, where landmark palpation, it's almost impossible sometimes. Uh, those patients with underlying spinal pathology, uh, particularly um, deformities um, and so forth. Uh, and the third group is patients that m have had previous spinal surgery. So some of these uh, groups traditionally were considered almost a contraindication for neuroaxial uh, technique. However, some of some of them are the ones that would benefit the most. Uh, for example, morbidly obese patients may also have a difficult airway, um, uh, obstructive sleep apnea, and they really benefit from spinal anesthesia. There's a lot of data now. Uh, that tells us that these groups, when we use uh, neuraxial ultrasound, it really increases the success of our technique. For example, there was a randomized trial uh, done a few years ago that included only these difficult groups of patients and success at first attempt was doubled from 30% to 65% or so. Um, so these groups, uh, it makes a huge difference. In, in my practice, um, I don't uh, do obstetrics uh, currently, but we have a very large orthopedic population uh, coming for hip and knee replacement. And these elderly patients, they have a lot of um, underlying you know, spinal deformities, scoliosis, and many of them are morbidly obese. And this is extremely helpful um, to increase both the success and the safety of, of these techniques. Yeah, so that, that is amazing. And I, and I think that it is great that the ultrasound can help us with these particularly challenging patient population. What are the structures or the advantages that ultrasound provides that your traditional palpation will not? Well, it gives you 
it really gives you 3D information based on two planes of 2D imaging. So basically what we do is we scan the spine in longitudinal plane and then in a transverse plane. And they give us complementary information. We can very accurately identify the spinal interspaces um, much more accurately than palpation. Uh, not only to, to identify where the interspaces are, but also at which level we are working. For example, I'm going to give you an example of how this can increase our safety. Even though intracord injections are very rare, they can happen. And if you look at all the case reports of intracord injection with devastating consequences for patients, uh, most of these cases were apparently very straightforward spinal anesthetics. Uh, but our colleagues, all well-trained anesthesiologists, actually were injecting much higher than they thought they were. And almost without fail in the case reports, you see that the recorded site of injection was at the L2-3, L3-4. But in fact, it was the palpation can be um, inaccurate by two to three levels, and the inaccuracy is usually higher than you think you are. Ultrasound allows you to very accurately identify the identity of the spaces. You know very, very clearly if you are, you know, you count down from the sacrum up. So you know you identify the L5 as 1, L4, 5, L3, 4, L2, 3 successively. And so the accuracy of ultrasound is much, much higher. We are accurate by about in 75 to 80% of cases, we are extremely accurate with ultrasound in which level we are. And when we are off, we are off by only one level. And this has been shown time and time again in many studies. Uh, as opposed to that, when we're doing it by palpation, we can often be off by two, even three levels. Um, and so this, of course, in increases the accuracy. The other type of information that ultrasound gives us is the depth of the epidural and spinal space. Uh, and we can measure that depth, again, quite accurately with an error margin of approximately half a centimeter. So five millimeters is the error margin of the depth. Uh, so that gives us fantastic information that we otherwise don't have just based on palpation. And the third um, aspect is the angle, uh, because by locating the best angle where we get the best image with ultrasound, whether the angle is up or down, and in cases of scoliosis, you know whether the angle should be right or left. You can determine that pretty accurately with ultrasound. And it's something that, you know, it, it's hard to know when you do it by palpation alone. So it gives you really a lot of information before you do your puncture. You can mark the space. You can mark the midline. You can mark the level. You know how deep you need to go and you know which angle you need to use, whether it's up or down, right or left. And so this is, you know, fantastic information. Again, for these difficult patients, I, I'm not advocating that this is necessary for every single patient. Just like when we do a, an airway, you know, you don't need to use fiber optic intubation in every single patient, but it's, a, it's an amazing tool for those difficult ones and stable C-spines and things like that. So an analogy you use in this case. If you have a slim 
a healthy patient with easy uh, palpating landmarks, you know, obviously that's that's a, a very easy case. And I think we're, we all can do that, no problem. But when you have these difficult cases, uh, it makes a huge difference. Yeah, I think it's very, you know, it's a very good point that you make there that there is a, a subset of patient population that, you know, benefits clearly from the use of ultrasound. And, you know, for the normal, the patient with the normal anatomy, uh, ultrasound may not necessarily benefit uh, patients as much. Now, I want to highlight a couple of things that you mentioned. Uh, the ultrasound actually makes you 75% accurate in terms of identifying the correct space, whereas we actually are normally 70% wrong when we decide where the um, the anatomy is by palpation. Now, several meta-analyses have confirmed the benefits that you just mentioned. One fact that I find interesting is that in 2008, the National Institute for Health and Clinical Excellence in the United Kingdom determined that sufficient evidence had been published to support the routine use of ultrasound to facilitate the catheterization of the epidural space. Despite the evidence, it seems to me that the use of ultrasound guidance for neuroaxial anesthesia is underutilized. What do you think? I mean, I think there's a huge difference from institution to institution, from country to country. Um, so, you know, different places have different practice patterns, but I think it's something that is definitely growing. And for example, here in Toronto, the centers that do the highest numbers of cases, whether it's for obstetric care or for orthopedic care, like in our case, we do use a lot of spinal ultrasound. And, and again, we find it invaluable for those difficult cases. Now, the easy cases, let's say, those young, healthy people with normal spines, they are excellent for learning because they have the best images. So if someone is just starting, I would encourage you to uh, do spinal ultrasound in those easy patients first to familiarize yourself with the images, with the patterns, because um, learning sonoanatomy is all about pattern recognition. So if you do your first neuroaxial ultrasound in a morbidly obese patient, in someone with a scoliosis, it's probably going to be frustrating because um, the images are not as good as uh, those with easy spine. So the easy spines are fantastic for learning. Once you have learned the pattern, even if you get 50% of the information in those difficult patients, you are 50% ahead because, um, you know, usually bipalpation is extremely hard in those patients. So, you know, again, I would suggest it's start with the easy ones and then um, to, for learning, and then you use that information in the ones that really need it, which are the difficult ones. And, you know, it. and I think you're right. Probably neuroaxial ultrasound is lagging behind a little bit compared to, for example, uh, ultrasound for, for peripheral nerve blocks. It seems to have been um, adapted faster than neuroaxial ultrasound. But it's it's definitely growing. There's you know there's a lot of literature. It, it, it's growing, and I think the use is is um, uh, especially when you when you have large patients, big patients, um, and and these challenging populations. Uh, I think it's, it's finding its place. 
Yeah, you 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 bring up a, a lot of great points here, and one that you mentioned that I I usually encourage residents to do just what you said to learn with the easy patients because the challenging patient is going to be a challenge for learning. It's too late to start learning with that patient. You have to learn with the easy patients, then pattern recognitions becomes easier. Yeah, you know it's just like. And again, I'm sorry that I'm using the same analogy, but it's just like doing an airway. You know, when you are a medical student and a, and a first year resident, you don't learn to intubate by intubating the most difficult cases. You learn to intubate by doing the easy airways first. And once you learn the anatomy and once you're comfortable with that, then you move on to the difficult ones. And, and, and this is something similar, right? You, you need to learn the technique. Uh, you need to do it when you're learning in a way that there's not a lot of pressure on your back um, and, you know, the stakes are low and and then you just do it for learning, learning the patterns, learning the anatomy and and building those patterns, those 3D patterns in your head. And then once you have them, um, you know, the difficult ones, as I said, even if you get 50% of the information, even 40% of the information that you need, um, it, it's it's better than than palpation. Yeah. Again, I, I those are great points. And as a matter of fact, uh, Dr. Arsola, another pioneer in the use of ultrasound technology, states the following in an editorial published in Anesthesia and Analgesia 2017. They believe that ultrasonography can be used effectively only when the procedure is technically difficult, rests on the assumption that the technology can be deployed with little practice. Based on your experience training physicians, what are your thoughts on the above quote? Oh, I completely agree. Completely agree. I think it's, uh, you know, like everything else in, in anesthesia, we are a highly technical specialty. We do a lot of things that are very technical. And um, it's it's the the best way of learning is learning on the easy patients. Uh, absolutely, you get the best images, and you solidify your technique and you solidify the sononatomy. So I completely agree with him. I think um, we need to know that the patients that will benefit from these are the difficult ones. But uh, we should spend a little bit of time um, learning on the easy ones. And once you have an approach and you have a technique, it doesn't take much time at all to do the spinal ultrasound once you have solidified it. Just really takes just a few minutes and it saves you a lot of time and a lot of grief in the end. Yeah, I agree 100%. What would you say to those that see the ultrasound as a technique that is um, allowing us to cheat or it actually affects the resident's training experience? I think it's tremendously helpful. For example, um, when the residents are just starting to learn and to identify you know, the iliac crests and where typically they are taught how to identify the L3-4 interspace accurately. Um, if you use ultrasound just to show the residents how inaccurate palpation is, it's like, you know, it's opening a whole new world. The residents realize like, oh yes, you know, this palpation it was it was great in the 1950s, you know, but but now we have something that is much better and much more accurate. So why not use it? You know, I think I think um, this concept of cheating is, it, with all due respect, I, I don't think it's uh, it's 
it's so. It's similar to, you know, in the old days, we used to intubate with a direct laryngoscopy all the time. And, and now more and more we're using video laryngoscopy for intubation. And we know it's, you know, it's much better. You can actually see what your trainees are doing. You can guide them better. And, and of course, it gives you a much better view uh, with the video laryngoscope. So, and, and I don't think any of us think that we're cheating by using video laryngoscope. So it's the same thing with ultrasound. You know, it's much more accurate. Um, there's, there's, it, it takes away a lot of the guessing game of where we are, where we need to go. And I think once, once you use it in a difficult patient, once you learn it, you use it in a difficult patient and it makes a very complicated procedure into a very simple one you're convinced, you know, once you have a case like that, and we've had so many where um, either the patient had a history of very difficult spinal, or we had one or two anis distry and different angles and different things. And then we use the ultrasound and it was a very straightforward one attempt procedure. Um, you know, these are obviously anecdotal in case, you know, cases, individual cases. Uh, but once you have one or two of those cases, you are convinced you don't need any more proof, even though there's there's a lot of data out there that that, that says that this is the case. Yeah, again, 100% agree with with all the the statements you just made, and and you bring another great point, and and it is that in the analogy of video assisted laryngoscopies, um, you can actually see what the trainee is doing, and there is no way we can actually see what the trainee is doing when we're doing an epidural, but having the knowledge of the estimated depth and knowing, be reassured that the the resident is very likely in the midline, we are saving the patient a few uh, needle punctures here and there, I think. Yeah, there's no question. And lots of data out there, and it's my experience as well. It decreases dramatically the number of pass needle passes that you need to do, and 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 again we know from literature complications are exceedingly rare, but for example, you know spinal epidural hematomas one of the risk factors for it is a difficult technique and multiple passes, so so why if you can do something with one or two attempts why um, set yourself up for for failure and difficulty when you can do it uh, in a way that's more straightforward. Nothing is a hundred percent, nothing is a hundred percent, but but this is you know way better than the alternative, which is palpation alone. hundred percent agree. Um, so now oh, changing gears here, let us talk about the use of gastric ultrasound. Gastric ultrasound is something that I'm actually starting uh, to learn a lot of uh, papers coming out, great papers coming out about the use of uh, gastric ultrasound. So in which clinical scenarios do you see the use of gastric ultrasound playing a role in changing our clinical decision-making process? Yeah, thank you for that question. So like, like, so I see gastric ultrasound as a bedside test, as another modality of point-of-care ultrasound. We are used to thinking about point-of-care ultrasound for application for, for, uh, for cardiac imaging, uh, for lung imaging, um, and um, gastric ultrasound is one more point-of-care application. And by that we mean it's a, a bedside test 
um, aim at answering a very specific clinical question, usually in a binary manner. It's a question that has a yes, no answer. You know, when we're doing cardiac ultrasound, we're asking ourselves, what is the contractility? Is the contractility normal or grossly abnormal? Um, uh, for example, um, is there a pericardial effusion? Yes or no uh, for, for the lung? Is there a pneumothorax? Yes or no. And for the, for the stomach, is the stomach full or empty? So over the years, um, in many studies, we have developed an ultrasound framework of how we define full stomach or empty stomach with ultrasound. And so when is this helpful? Again, in patients in whom clinically, we are not certain what is the, the fullness of the stomach, what is the MPO status. I... Again, I think it, we can learn gastric ultrasound on every single patient, but I definitely don't think it's indicated for clinical purpose on every single patient. That would be a mistake, I think. Just like we don't do a chest x-ray on every patient that has had anesthesia, just like we don't do an ECG on every patient that has had anesthesia, we don't need to do gastric ultrasound on every single patient, only on those in whom we are in doubt. And recently, um, there's uh, actually a, a lot of interest in gastric ultrasound because of the advent, for example, of the GLP-1 agonists like, you know, semaglutide and these type of medications that are being used for uh, diabetes and also for, for um, weight loss. We know that these drugs can prolong uh, gastric emptying. And there's been a few case reports just in the last few months because these are new drugs just in the last few months, there's been a few case reports of severe aspiration episodes on patients that had fasted for 12 and 14 hours. Um, so patients that are in, in these medications, actually the ASA uh, came up with a statement just in June, at the end of June of this year, June 2023, the ASA suggested that, you know, these drugs have to be um, stopped for a certain period of time. But many, many, in many opportunities, we don't see these patients early enough in clinic to stop these medications one or two weeks. Um, and different societies suggest different timelines. Some people say minimum of one week stopping them. Some others say minimum of two weeks. Um, and But if you have a patient that has been on these drugs and they received them recently, um, and the ASA recommends that actually you use gastric ultrasound to be able to differentiate that. Um, and then there's the, uh, the, uh, the other uh, important guideline in this respect um, is came from Europe, the European Society of Anesthesiologists uh, last year in 2022, they updated their fasting guidelines for children. And again, they incorporate gastric ultrasound in their guidelines, saying that um, in cases when children are coming for urgent or emergency surgery, or when fasting guidelines are, it's not clear whether they follow them or not. Sometimes with children, you know, the parents say, well, you know, I found them with a Cheerio in their mouth. I don't know if they, it was just that Cheerio of, of, or they ate a whole bunch. Uh, and, and these cases happen you know, again and again. So when you're not sure clinically what the situation is, gastric ultrasound can help you in a yes or no manner differentiate, yes, this is compatible with fasting or no, this is not compatible with, fa with fasting. And it gives you two types of information. It tells you what's the type of content 
nothing clear fluid or solid and nothing are, and, and solid are easy to interpret. You know, a solid food is a full stomach. Nothing is an empty stomach. And if you find clear fluid, you can, you can do a, a little volume assessment and uh, you can differentiate if this is a small amount of volume compatible with fasting or this is a high amount of volume that's in excess of what you would expect for a fasting person. So, you know, it can help you differentiate that way. And then it, with that information, uh, it can guide your your anesthetic in the safest way you think possible. Yeah, those are great examples. And I was going to definitely bring up the ASA communication about these medications because we, they basically delay the gastric emptying. So that is ext extremely important. And I, I want to highlight an excellent resource uh, of the clinical value of gastric ultrasound can be found in your review article titled Point of Care Gastric Ultrasound and Aspiration Risk Assessment, a narrative review published in the Canadian Journal of Anesthesia 2018. So I encourage all the listeners to, re to look at that uh, paper. Now, um, related to the obstetric patient, we also think that the obstetric patient, when they're in labor, their gastric emptying is delayed. And for that reason, uh, patients, particularly those that are coming and are have a prolonged induction, sometimes we have patients you know, being induced for a couple of days, they already have an epidural, and we tend not to um, feed these patients. A recent study uh article published in the Journal of Anesthesiology titled Pregnancy and Labor Epidural Effects on Gastric Emptying, a prospective comparative study anesthesiology publication uh, demonstrated that labor epidural facilitates gastric emptying. As an expert studying and validating the use of point-of-care ultrasound techniques to assess gastric content and volume at the bedside of obese and non-obese adults, children, and pregnant women, do you think the use of ultrasound may change how we nourish our laboring patients, particularly those undergoing lengthy inductions? That's an excellent question. As I said, I don't currently practice obstetric anesthesia, so I'm going to be cautious with my answers and, you know, you have to take them with a pinch of salt. But I have done a number of uh, gastric ultrasound studies with the group from Mount Sinai Hospital, Christine Arzola and Jose Carvalho. We've done a number of studies on pregnant women. And uh, we actually were a bit surprised of our findings. When we studied women coming for elective C-section, women that were not in labor, they were fasting, they were coming from home for their elective C-section, their gastric content was no different from non-pregnant people. But I think those in labor, it's a bit of a different. It's a bit of a different story. I think there's there's uh, at least uh, in my conversations with uh, Christian and Sola and Jose Carvalho, who work in a very high volume and high risk population of ob uh, of obstetric women. They do seven thousand deliveries a year at Mount Sinai Hospital. They are quite convinced that uh, the uh, gastric fullness or emptying during labor is a bit unpredictable. Um, and um, labor in, in, by itself can delay gastric emptying. Um, and so it, it's a bit unpredictable. You know, you cannot rely solely on the number of hours of MPO to decide whether they are truly fasted or not once they are in labor. Yeah, I'm 
I think this study, uh, from from what I gathered, was that the gastric emptying of the patients that had an epidural on board was actually faster than those laboring without epidural. So I'm wondering if our future, I mean, definitely more research is needed. This was a very small study, but I, I'm, I'm thinking that, it, you know, in the future, we will be able to make a decision about letting a patient take some a small caloric intake. Uh, I'm not, I'm not talking about having them have a, a burger, but uh, in the in the in this study, actually, they had a yogurt, which will provide them some calories and some sugar. So, it will be good, particularly for those uh, patients undergoing a lengthy induction. Yeah, I'm not familiar with that study, so I cannot I cannot comment specifically. And again, I don't practice obstetric anesthesia. So, but my, my, just my, my own knowledge from other groups of patients, um, dairy products can also have a bit of a longer emptying compared to just clear fluids. So for example, apple juice, which has significant, you know, significant uh, caloric uh, content, um, it's, it's, um, most people would empty it by two hours but I'm not talking about women in labor, you know, that can be longer. And certainly dairy products such as yogurt, they they can take much longer than that. Four to six hours is not unusual for emptying of yogurt. So, you know, I think, I think uh, probably we need to do, you know, a little bit more studies in, in specifically in pregnant women as to what is the time for emptying of, of dairy products once they're in labor. Yeah, that that is great. Thank you so much for your time today. Um, I I usually end my podcast with the top five recommendations uh, related to the topic. So, what are your top five recommendations for learning ultrasound and the future of ultrasound? Uh, you know, I think there's a lot of excitement uh, in in anesthesia in ultrasound, both for interventional procedures such as neuroaxial anesthesia or for diagnostic purposes, just as the point of care ultrasound applications. So, you know, you commented early on uh, today um, that very often the residents and, you know, the junior staff and the residents are the most excited about the use of ultrasound in their practice. And that gives me uh, a lot of uh, hope and confirmation, you know, that, that when, when the young generations are interested in something, you know, that's the future of our, of our specialty. And that's something that I see all over the place. Uh, when, when I teach or talk everywhere in the, in the world that I've been, that is the case. Usually the younger people are more interested in these new technologies. Um, so what would be my top recommendations for learning? Um, there's a lot of online resources. Uh, you can read studies and papers, but there's also a lot of online resources. Look them up and you'll find them on on and gastric ultrasound, on neuroaxial ultrasound, on ultrasound for regional anesthesia. Um, and so they are very useful. So I would use them when, you, when you're starting. I would uh, find good review articles as a guide. Um, and then start with the easy patients and when the stakes are low both for neuroaxial anesthesia and for gastric ultrasound. 
you need to scan a fair number of easy patients to learn um, the pattern of, of the neuroxis, and you need to scan patients in whom you know what the stomach content is. You can scan yourself. You can scan, you know, your, your colleagues. Um, and it's a very non-invasive, easy thing to do. You can scan yourself when you're fasted, after drinking clear fluids, and after drink and after eating solid food. And then the differences are going to be quite obvious to you. And so that's the best way of learning. And uh, only start uh, doing this for the difficult patients once you're comfortable with the easy ones. And start with one thing at a time, you know. You can say, all right, I'm going to start with the spine. Uh, don't don't try to learn everything at once. Uh, the same thing for POCUS. You know, there's many POCUS applications. That, again, the literature is exploding. The interest is growing in North America for cardiac, for lung. Even for non, I'm talking for non-cardiac anesthesiologists, for the generalist anesthesiologists, very useful um, diagnostic tools. So the same thing, you know, um, learn one at a time and, and find good resources. For example, the, the ASA certificate of completion that was just um, launched two years ago, there's a lot of interest, uh, over a, a thousand anesthesiologists um, enrolled in the certificate on the first year. And we are heading for similar numbers on the second year. Um, and it's a great resource, for example, for POCUS applications for cardiac, lung, fast, and gastric. Um, and, and it's a full, um, you know, they give you a certificate of completion at the end. So it's, it's a wonderful resource as well if you're interested in the diagnostic applications. Yeah. Thank you so much for uh, your time. Thank you for those uh, pearls. Uh, of wisdom. Um, we want to thank you also for all your wor the work you've done regarding the use of ultrasound. I think ultrasound is here to stay and the technology is only going to get better and we're going to keep getting more and more information. So thank you so much for being here with us today and sharing your knowledge. Thank you very much, Antonio, for inviting me and all the best in this journey.